0: begin at the end of Luke 22 and we'll continue into Luke 23. Our passage is from verse 26, I'm sorry, 66 of 22, so 22:66 22, and then I'll be reading through verse 25 of chapter 23. So we are towards the end of the Gospel of Luke. We are approaching the cross, but we know the cross will not be the end of the story. Praise God. So Luke 22, verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He serves of the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, and he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now we want to listen to what you have said to us in your word and we pray that your spirit would come and work in our hearts what needs to happen. Father, maybe we uh, would confess that we believe all of it. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, that he will be the one who will sit in judgment over all the world and us. The Lord, maybe our lives Do not match up with our testimony. Maybe our lives um, look much more like the unbelieving world than they do like someone who has been saved by Christ. So we pray this morning that you would do the necessary work in our hearts today. That we would follow Christ with all of our heart. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. While I studied in seminary, my New Testament professor was a quiet, soft-spoken, small man with a graying beard. Uh, he didn't live very far away from the seminary campus, and I would often see him on the streets walking his pet beagle after class. Although he had a very fitting first name for a New Testament scholar, his last name did, did not match his look or his personality much at all. His name was Paul Rainbow. Paul Rainbow. And I must admit, it was a bit difficult for me not to smile whenever I heard another student call him Dr. Rainbow. (laughs) However, we loved Dr. Rainbow because he had a passion for God's Word that was contagious. And one of his favorite questions to ask new students in his classes was, which of the New Testament authors wrote more of the New Testament than any other? And most believe the answer was Paul. Paul did write the most books in the New Testament, but the answer is actually Luke. Luke wrote only two books, but they were long ones, and therefore he wrote more words than any other New Testament author. And the two books that Luke wrote were, of course, the Gospel of Luke that we've been Uh, in here on our Sunday mornings, and he also wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles. In the book of Acts, Luke shows us how the apostles would look back to the Old Testament scriptures in order to understand and communicate who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. One of those places we, we see them doing this is in Acts chapter 4, just after The apostles Peter and John were arrested and imprisoned and then questioned by the very same religious authorities that were questioning Jesus in the passage that we just read, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And Luke tells us that they charged Peter and John to speak no more to anyone in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. They released them. And when Peter and John returned to the other disciples and believers, they gathered together and they prayed for boldness to continue to proclaim the good news about Jesus. They'd just been warned they better not do this anymore. They threatened them. Well, they went back and they prayed for boldness to continue to proclaim the message of Jesus. Jesus. And we are given part of that prayer in Acts 4, verse 24, where they prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly... They prayed, in this city There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the apostles were looking back to the very scenes in uh, the Gospel of Luke that, that Luke describes for us in our sermon passage from Luke 22 and 23, and they recognize what was going on there was what David wrote about in Psalm 2. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote about this in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a direct quote from Psalm 2. So they're saying, Psalm 2 was pointing forward to when Jesus was arrested by the Jewish religious leaders and then brought before Pilate and King Herod. And the people with the highest authority in all of the land of Israel at the time were set against God and against his anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. At that time, it, it looked to them that They were the ones who were in control. They were the ones who had captured Jesus. They were the ones who had questioned Jesus. They were the ones who would ultimately crucify the Lord of glory. But as the apostles go on to say in their prayer in Acts 4, they were only doing what God had already predestined to take place. Unknowingly, each of these authorities was simply fulfilling God's incredible plan for the redemption of his sinful, rebellious people. God's purpose was to rescue his people, and he accomplished it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we are, we are seeing here through Luke 22 and 23. Our main theme from, from, from this passage is although he was completely righteous, the Son of God was condemned to die so that his guilty people could live forever. Now back to our passage here in Luke 22 and 23. We see that Luke has has three main concerns that he is showing us in this passage. The first is the identity of Jesus. The second is the innocence of Jesus. And the third is who is responsible for what happens to Jesus. So we'll look at the first one first. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, one of the things that you may have noticed as we read through this passage is is how little Jesus speaks. This passage is mostly full of other people talking about Jesus, particularly about who he is and what should be done with him. When Jesus does speak in the passage, though, he is saying some pretty significant things about himself, things that we ought to pay attention to. So Jesus stood before the elders of the people along with uh, the chief priests and the scribes here. These were the leaders of the Jews. These were the ones who had the highest authority, and they demanded that Jesus tell them if he really was the Christ, that is, if he really was the Messiah, the Lord's anointed king, the promised son of David, the one who would rule over God's people and whose kingdom would never come to an end. That's what they're asking Jesus about here. Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not not answer. See, Jesus knows that the only reason why these leaders Want him to confess to being the Christ is so that they can use his confession as a charge against him. Their goal is to get him crucified. They want him killed. But they know they will need Pilate's help with that, and so they are pressuring Jesus to make a claim about himself a claim that he is a king. They already have their minds made up about him. They they have rejected him. They hate him. To to them, even if he was the Christ, they would still refuse to serve him. They would refuse to submit to him for, for, for they would have to change their ways. They would have to acknowledge that his criticisms about what they were teaching were right. They would have to confess the sins that Jesus had accused them of that they were, in fact, unjustly taking advantage of the poor and the widows. They weren't about to adjust their lives to anything that Jesus has taught or said, even if he was the Christ. But more than anything, they would have to humble themselves and bow the knee to Jesus and acknowledge their allegiance to him. And that is something that their pride just will not allow them to do. And Jesus knows that. But what did Jesus say about who he is? That's in the next verse, verse 69. He says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So in verse 69, Jesus combines here two different Messianic Old Testament passages, referring to himself as the Son of Man. That's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, saying that he shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In other words, he was about to be put in a place of the highest authority, the highest authority, not just in in Israel, but over all the universe. He would be the one sitting in authority over all of them. He would be the one that would sit in judgment over them rather than each of them sitting in judgment over him. They then ask him directly, Are you the Son of God then? His answer might seem a little vague to us, but when we consider their reaction to what he says, we know he, did, he definitely did confirm that he is the son of God. He basically said, well, you said it. It is as you say. So who was really on trial here? Who was really the ones who were on trial? Now, from, from a worldly perspective, these men had all the authority over the small, weak, lonely man who claimed he was God. And then he also stood before Pilate. Pilate, who was uh, the Roman prefect, the one, the one there standing in the place of the emperor. And then he stood before Herod, who was, who was a, a, a puppet king of a good portion of, of Palestine. These men stayed in palaces. They had the authority over what to do with Jesus. But in actuality, They were standing before the Son of God. They were standing before the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He was the one who by his word sustained the universe. The next time they would stand before him would be when they will face him in judgment. And each of us we'll have to stand before him on that day as well. And we'll have to give an account of how we lived the life that he gave us, whether or not we believed what he said, whether or not we did what he commanded. So who is Jesus? Well, who do you say that he is? The one thing that the Gospel of Luke has shown us is that what you believe about who Jesus is will directly affect how you live. It will lead to you living a certain way and will affect how others respond to you. Here in in this passage, we have three different responses to who Jesus is. One group hated Jesus for what he taught and what he said about what it really means to, to honor God. They didn't care what Uh, Jesus said. They They weren't going to change how they lived their lives. And this, of course, was the religious leaders of the Jews. And then there was another group that didn't even take Jesus seriously. Not really caring what he said, had no significance to them whatsoever. They believed he really didn't matter. That, of course, was Pilate and Herod. Jesus amused them. But there is another group. This group isn't mentioned in our, in our passage, but they were still a big part of the context of what was going on here. This group believed Jesus was the Christ. But they were all in hiding. They were afraid of being identified with Jesus. They were afraid to let anyone else know that they believed in Jesus as the Christ, and they weren't going to talk with, uh, with anyone else about him In our world today, we see a very similar uh, response to Jesus. We see those who hate him, especially what he says. We see those who don't care about him, don't take seriously at all what he says. And we see those who believe. They believe that he's the Christ. They believe he's the Savior. But are fearful of talking about him. So which group might you be in this morning? Who do you say that Jesus is? Remember what what Jesus said here in Luke 12, verse 8. He said, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, the one sitting in judgment over us, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Second question we're looking at is what did he deserve? What did he deserve? This passage. The whole company of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes bring Jesus then to Pontius Pilate, uh, 20, 23 verse 1. Uh, Pilate was the Roman authority over Palestine. He was usually based in Caesarea, which was a much more Roman city than the heavily Jewish and religious city of Jerusalem. But since it was the Passover and millions of Jews had gathered in Jerusalem, it was his duty to lead the Roman presence there in order to keep the peace. The religious leaders brought three different charges against Jesus before Pilate here. If you want to look at verse 2 of chapter 23, he said, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So the first two two charges were just trumped up lies. But the third charge is something Jesus admitted to because it's true. It's true. And they knew Pilate would be most interested in that charge because it made Jesus sound like he was a revolutionary. He was someone who's working to overthrow the rule of Rome over them. They made it sound like Jesus was claiming to be a direct adversary and rival to the Roman emperor. So Pilate then asked Jesus if, if he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds in much the same way as he did before. You have said so. It, it is as you say. You said it. But to Pilate and everyone else in the courtroom, Jesus certainly did not look at all like a king. He definitely didn't look like he was a threat to Rome. So Pilate tells the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. We see Pilate come to the same conclusion four more times in our passage. In verse 14, he tells the chief priests and the people again, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then in verse 15, Pilate Pilate, uh, then says, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Then in verse 20, Pilate again tries to release Jesus from custody. And finally in, in, in verse 22, in response to the people shouting and demanding that they crucify Jesus, Luke emphasizes that Pilate was saying this For the third time, it says, for the third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. So Luke makes it clear that Pilate didn't want um, to crucify Jesus. He found him not guilty. That Jesus had done nothing deserving death, and there were many, many witnesses to Pilate's judgment. It was established that Jesus was completely innocent. He was blameless. There was no guilt found in him. Now, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews as a church in our worship services, and so uh, we've heard there why it's so vital for Jesus who have been declared to be this innocent, guiltless, and completely righteous high priest. We are told in, in, in Hebrews 7 that we needed a high priest to make atonement for our sins, one who was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, one that has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, you know, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's in Hebrews seven twenty six and 27. Because Jesus was perfect, because he was sinless, he was able to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins, as well as the perfect high priest coming into God's presence himself to make intercession for his sinful people and to cover them with his righteousness. In the two of the Psalms of David, the question is asked of the Lord, Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Or who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's in Psalms uh, 15 and 24. In those Psalms, David is considering if there will ever be anyone worthy enough to stand in the very presence of the perfectly holy God, just like we sung A little bit earlier, will there ever be anyone worthy enough to take the scroll, to unravel the history of the plan of redemption for God's people? And David says in those Psalms, the only one, the only one who would ever be worthy of such an honor, the only one who would ever be, be able to stand before God would be someone who walks blamelessly someone who who does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, one who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor. Of course, that eliminates all of us in this room right there. And one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Brothers and sisters, there's only one who has ever fulfilled those holy requirements. Only one who is worthy to represent us before such a holy God, and that is Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus was the one human being who ever lived who did not deserve to be condemned. But instead, deserve blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We all deserve death. We all deserve to be condemned, for the wages of sin is death. But Jesus is the only one of us who did not deserve death. He was entirely without sin. He fulfilled the law of Christ in everything. And yet, What we see here is that his own people demanded that he be crucified. While the guy who did deserve the cross, Barabbas, the real revolutionary, the real one guilty of insurrection, the one who had been imprisoned for insurrection and for murder, they wanted him to be set free. They wanted him to live. This of course is a real life example of what Jesus was about to do for all of his sinful people. Just imagine that, that man Barabbas. He's sitting under guard in a prison cell that morning awaiting what, what he knew would, would be the most painful and torturous, uh, torturous death imaginable for him. He knew he was guilty of his crimes. He may have been regretting and wishing that he would never have allowed himself to fall in with that crowd that he was in, to have allowed his anger to overtake him as it did. But he knew he deserved what he was getting. And now all of a sudden he he hears an angry mob shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And the reality settles in his heart. Today is the day. And then he hears the guards coming down towards the door. He he hears the the rattle of the keys as they unlock the door. Then they come to him, and they unlock his chains. But instead of placing the cross on his back to carry to the execution site, they tell him he's free to go. And as he begins to walk away in, in disbelief, he notices they're putting the cross on another man's back. Instead of it being placed on Barabbas' shoulders, it is placed on his. And he, and he asks people in the crowd, well, what did this other man do to deserve the cross? And they all kind of have different answers, and they're all kind of a bit vague as to what he did. But but Barabbas knows, as he sees him struggle to carry that cross, that Jesus was about to receive what he deserved. That Jesus was taking his place on that cross and that instead of this being his day to suffer and die, Jesus would be the one who would receive his condemnation in his place. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ by faith this morning, you are like Barabbas in this passage. You deserve to be condemned for your sins. The wages of sin is death. And yet, through your faith in what Jesus has done, you've received eternal life. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Was he full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. And lastly, we're going to see who is responsible for Jesus' death who's responsible for his death. Probably the most, most troubling scene in our passage, and I believe probably in all the Bible, is in verses 20 through 24. Let's look at those verses. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Why would religious people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, which recalls God's mercy towards them, why would they demand with such vehemence to have Jesus crucified over and over again luke shows us the religious leaders were working to have jesus crucified can we just point the finger at them and say they're the ones who are responsible for this they're the ones who we can blame well if we're, we're looking for responsibility then also we have to point out how Pilate, Pilate had the authority to release jesus He had that authority, but instead he acquiesced to the people's demands. He believes it was easier for him to just give them what they wanted rather than to take a stand. If he was really a man of integrity and wanted to do what was just, he would have never allowed Jesus to be crucified just because this angry mob demanded it. We could also blame Herod. I mean, Herod... You know, Pilate Pilate put Jesus under his custody for a time. Herod could have released him, but instead Herod sent him back to Pilate. You deal with him. Jesus was the son of God. He was guiltless. He never sinned. He always did what was right in the eyes of God. He was holy. He spoke God's word. He pointed out the sins and and the hypocrisies of the religious leaders, And the more Jesus was around, the more exposed the religious leaders felt. Even one of his own disciples warned him dead, Judas. Judas, who, you know, we are told, used to help himself to what was in the money bag where they collected gifts for the poor. So being with Jesus was just this constant reminder to him that he was a thief. And that he was a liar. Jesus had that effect on people being holy, being righteous, always telling the truth, always doing what was right in God's sight. Growing up, there, there were a few other boys in, in, in my class that I, you know, kind of always wish they'd just move away. There's one boy who was always a much better athlete than I was. There's a, another boy who was all, always seemed to get more attention than I did. And I'll be honest, I hated him. Not because they were horrible people. They, they were nice enough guys, but, but they were better than me. They were better than me. When I was with them, I was always reminded that I didn't measure up as high as I wanted to in the eyes of others. When they were around, I was exposed as not being as athletic as I wanted to be and not as cool as I thought I was. So I always wished that they would just move away. And one of them did. With Jesus, we had, we had perfect holiness embodied in a man. Perfect holiness, which exposed everyone else as a sinner, as guilty, Expose everyone else as a liar, as someone who was falling short of the righteous life that God required. So eventually the ones who had the most to lose, if they were exposed as frauds, these religious leaders, they are the ones leading the charge to have Jesus both condemned and killed. They couldn't stand to be in the presence of his perfect holiness anymore. They couldn't stand hearing about it from those they were seeking to lead and impress. And we have to understand, if we were in their, their shoes, we would have done the same thing. We would, have respond, we would not have responded any differently from how they did. So who is responsible for Jesus' death? Well, let's recall what the believers in Acts chapter 4 Prayed. They said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Ultimately, this was the will of God that was being played out here. But for what purpose? It was for the salvation of all of God's guilty people. Our sin, our sin was what was placed on Jesus as he died. We are all responsible. We are all guilty. As, as, as Stuart Townend puts it in his great song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, he says, Behold the man upon the cross. My sin Upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So, do you know that it is finished? Have you put your trust in Jesus? that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who died in your place for your sins? Or are you trusting in your own goodness or your own religious activities to be what what earns your place in heaven? Friends, look to the man upon the cross. Your sin was on his shoulders. He paid that price so you could go free. So trust in him, follow him, and tell others that he is the only way to eternal life for them as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we praise you and give you thanks. It was your will that Jesus would go to the cross. And we know it was for our good. There's no other way that we could be reconciled to you. And so we praise you and honor you. We praise our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We praise God, the Holy Spirit, for showing us this in your word. But We pray now that you would continue to help us to trust in Christ. And for those, those here that, that maybe would confess to believing in him, but if their lives have not matched up to their testimony, I pray today. That you would so work in their hearts to lead them to repentance and help them to begin to walk in newness of life, a life that honors you. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen.